I was at uh, QF earlier this week, and uh, sitting there as I was buying my Chinese food was a, uh, uh, a magazine that I grabbed. Uh, it's Temptation Days for this catalog uh, between April the 19th and the 29th. And so uh, uh, this was advertising Temptation Days and all sorts of, uh, I don't know if for any of you, if you can see them, the pillows on the front have any sort of temptational draw whatsoever. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, there's all sorts of really cool furniture in here. Uh, temptation days. The temptation is something we uh, interact with on a regular basis. Our high school youth group has been talking about temptation and what it means to get hooked by temptation uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, the first week we spent some time just defining it up. The second week we talked about the role of friends. And, and really tonight actually is our third in our series uh, of talks on temptation. So uh, not only do some of the high school kids uh, get to come here this morning and tonight to kind of catch the third talk, but also you guys get a window in to some of what we're discussing and what we're walking through as a high school ministry as we move through this area of temptation. That's just really applicable to all of us. Uh, we've used the analogy of fishing. Uh, through this whole thing, the idea of fishing. I'm not a big fisherman. I don't do good in fishing at all. Uh, I have, my extent of my fishing is, is um, once I went with my father, uh, once maybe twice uh, when we lived here, uh, and, and we had a boat, and I remember my brother and I and my dad driving it to French Creek Marina and backing the boat into the water down the ramp. And as dad went to drive the truck and the trailer back to the parking lot, my brother and I held the boat on the dock. We kind of were suspicious about the fact that the, the buoyancy level of the boat continued to decline while dad was parking. And, and we're concerned about that. Uh, dad got back and we suddenly realized, you know, when we cleaned this boat down and washed all the salt water off the outside and we cleaned off the inside and we wanted to drain all the water out the back, this plug thing you take out to drain the water, it is crucial. It goes back in before you put the boat in the ocean. And so he had to go and get the truck and the trailer and bring it back and back in. It was a short, short fishing trip. Um, it may be genetic. I just, I don't do well with fishing. Uh, I come from Saskatchewan and they fish differently there. Uh, winter is there a lot of the time. It is still winter. It actually snowed in Saskatchewan again last night. My mom's just arrived here. We had to reacquaint her with what the green stuff on the ground was. Uh, it has been a crazy long winter there. And so, of course, those diehard fishermen in Saskatchewan, they find other ways to fish when the lakes and the things are, are frozen over. And they do something called ice fishing. Have you ever seen it? I went ice fishing once. And uh, I took along a video camera. I'm scared of ice fishing. Uh, these poor fish, nobody's sticking up for the trout. Nobody's kind of uh, got the signs out for the salmon. And, and we, we throw out our hook a little bit of the bait on it, whether we're in a, a river and we're casting that out there, whether we're fly fishing there, whether we're in a, a lake and, and we've, we've got the, the, the lure down there and trying to hook something, whether we're in the, in the ocean and we're trolling a bit, uh, these fish, they, they come along, they see the hook with some kind of a bait, a lure has been set for them and they bite on that. And, and, and the first thing we do is when we feel some tension, as I'm told, uh, on the end of that rod is we, we pull on it because we want to make sure that we, we get that hook in so we can land this thing. And we have sport fishing now, and so we land these things. And instead of taking that fish, 
It's got the side of its face gouged out now and putting it out of its misery. This morning I said ministry. And we were concerned that ministry was misery, but it's not. Uh, put it out of its misery. We instead kind of hold it down, grab a big old pair of pliers like when you go to the dentist. We take this hook out of its face, and disformed now, bleeding, handicapped from any kind of proper eating procedures for the next rest of its life. We throw it back in to go back to its friends to be taunted and mocked as the scar face. As the, oh, why aren't you eating so much? You look like you're using, oh, yes, you've got a hole in the side of your mouth. You can't eat well. Uh, and we send them back. I feel bad for these little fish. And we've been using this analogy for this whole series on temptation because really, when we look at it, that's exactly the process we go through when we're tempted. Whether it's the flesh or the world or the evil one, the hook is baited with something that just we can't stay away from. And it's thrown out there, and eventually we come along and we bite that hook of temptation. And it leaves us scarred. It leaves us hurt. It leaves us malformed and handicapped as we go back into life with other people. Uh, we get messed up. And so this is where we've been as a high school ministry the last few weeks. As I mentioned, the first week we uh, spent some time in, uh, in James 1, 13 to 15, kind of defining what exactly this whole idea of temptation is. Let me read it for you. It says this. If you're taking notes tonight, by the way, I think we ran out of bulletins uh, as people were coming in. But if you're taking notes tonight, uh, you'll, just, you'll be able to catch some of these verses there. Uh, and you can just uh, jump into taking notes with us. It says this. It says, and remember, says James, the brother of Jesus, as he's writing, no one who wants to do wrong should ever say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else either. Let's hit a pause button there for just a second. That first week as we define sin up in our series, we had to say, you know what? There's a difference between temptation and trial. God doesn't tempt us at all. He's not a tempter. He doesn't think of ways to suck us in and wound us. He, however, does allow us to be tempted in order to grow us. He's interested in putting trials before us so that we'll come out healthier, more mature in our spiritual walk and our relationship with other people and of ourselves. He doesn't allow us to have trials, but he is not the one who is the tempter. That whole job description belongs to another one, doesn't it? The accuser, the tempter. Uh, Jesus probably understands temptation, though, God understands temptation, possibly even better than we do. Uh, I mean, Jesus, Hebrews talks about the fact that Jesus came and was tempted by every single way that we might be tempted. But was without sin. And so, as the hook is baited, and it's put out in front of us, and we're tempted by it, we resist perhaps some better than others, and, and at some point we actually bite that hook of temptation. Uh, Jesus, though, withstood that. He didn't bite that hook. He withstood temptation even further than we did, to a greater degree than we have. And so probably understands temptation a lot more than we do because he's endured even more of it than we have. So God understands temptation, but he is not the tempter. We continue to frame up as we continue in James the definition of temptation. 
James continues, temptation comes from the lure. If you're taking notes, circle that word lure. The lure of our own evil desires. We're going to spend some time tonight looking at Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to just, just kind of explore that idea of our own evil desires. And how they hook us in. These evil desires then, James continues, leads to evil action. The hook has been bit. And evil action leads to death. And hurt. And pain. And scarring. And that handicapped life that we find ourselves in. That was the first week. The second week as high school students, we spent some time looking at the role of friends. And how gathering people around us can help us win the battles of temptation. One of the truths is simply this. God wants us to win against temptation. He's not interested in seeing us hurt. He's not interested in seeing us broken. In fact, quite the opposite. He's interested in us experience life and life to the full. John 10.10 includes... There we go. Uh, John 10, I didn't want to sit down and all of a sudden crack and people thought I was breaking chairs. Um, uh, John 10.10 10 talks about the fact that Jesus is one who has come to give us life. And one translation says, more and better life than we could ever hope for or imagine. Just sit there for a second. More and better life. If you're in this room and you're exploring Christianity, you would not say I'm a follower of Jesus. You would not say I've embraced Christ as my God and my rescuer from sin. You're simply exploring and asking questions. That should intrigue you greatly. That Jesus has come to give you life. Real and better life than you could ever hope for or imagine. That intrigues me. Something I could never imagine. That's what Jesus comes to bring. For those of us on the flip side of that, we've embraced Christ as our Lord. We've been Braced him as our rescuer from sin. He is our God, and we serve him. We walk in the kingdom of God. That should cause us to explore where we're at. Am I living a life that is bigger than I could hope for or imagine before I met the Lord? These are some of the, the things that we talk about, and, and how friends around us can help us to win that battle against temptation. And live in that full life that God's brought. Um, uh, James 5.16 says that we are to confess our sins to one another. And pray for one another that we might be healed. And it talks about effective prayer uh, causing much in our life. Again, it's confessing our sins one to another. There's a role for friendship to come around us. So that we can share our secrets. So that we can share the stuff that trips us up. And they can keep us accountable. That's where we went the second week. Today we're going to spend some time looking about how we respond to temptation. Let me back up. How we respond once we've bitten the hook of temptation. So let's be real. Bringing friends around us to keep us from it is one thing. But what about when we fall? What about when we bite that hook? How do we respond to it? There's a natural way that we as humanity respond to it. But there's also a biblical way to respond to it. We're going to kind of compare and contrast those two tonight. Uh, let, let's pray for a moment and then we'll, we'll jump into the, the meat of it. God, I pray tonight as we uh, open your word, as we explore the scriptures tonight, that you would teach us much about your plan for how we might 
respond when we fall into temptation. God, I thank you that your word, that scripture is not a book that is theory uh, alone, just trivia somehow, but it's alive and active. And Holy Spirit, that you would bring it to life tonight as we read from it, Lord. Thank you, God, for what you're about to do. In your name we pray. Amen. Like I say, there's a natural way that we respond once we've sinned. Uh, I, I brought along a little easel tonight, a little whiteboard tonight. And you, I'm just going to draw out for you uh, the, the progression of how we respond once we've bitten that hook. The, the hook has been set. Let's put the little hook there. And we've, we've, we've bitten it. So, so now where do we go? Well, the immediate reaction we have once we've bitten that hook of temptation is, is simply remorse. We feel bad. If you're taking notes, you can write that right beside your circle. Remorse. We feel bad that we've done it. There's a regret that wells up inside of us. A shame that comes and a sorrow that comes because we have sinned. Or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, that's because as this response continues and we get into cyclical sin patterns and start going through it and through it, at the end, we begin to numb out to it. And we begin to get desensitized to the effect of that sin. And as we sin cyclically more and more and more, we get desensitized to it to the point where we don't even feel bad anymore about it. Is it wrong? Absolutely. Is it sin? Absolutely. Do we feel bad about it? No, because we've been numbed to it. But we're just going to walk through the immediate responses. Sorrow. Sadness. Uh, And that quickly moves us to the next word, which is guilt. We move to guilt. What I have done was wrong. And it moves from that head of remorse to that heart of guilt. But as humankind, we don't like guilt. We don't like feeling bad. We want to rescue ourselves from that feeling. And by the way, we're going to get to the biblical response in a second. And it's right here where we can hit the eject button from this cycle. We want to save ourselves from feeling bad. And so we take on that task ourselves rather than running to the Lord with it. And so we start to blame. And our response to guilt, because I don't want to feel bad, is that we begin to blame. We blame others. We blame the situation. We blame God. Uh, If you have a Bible with you and you want to turn to Genesis chapter 3, the story of the first humans, Adam, story of Eve. Uh, they are in a paradise. God has created. Uh, he's created them and he's placed them in it. They have authority over everything that he has created on that paradise. They have access to anything they would need. God has given them all they need, including access and relationship with himself and access and relationship with each other. He, however, has held back and put boundaries around one area. He said, there's a tree here that you may not eat the fruit of. 
rest of the planet, rest of paradise, go for it. There's just one that you must stay away from. And the story goes that, of course, Satan comes along and baits the hook of temptation with just that tree and just that fruit. And the woman saw, it says in chapter 3, verse 6, when the woman saw the fruit of that tree was good for food, and so, I'm hungry. I've got all this. But that looks interesting. I'm hungry for that food. First John 2.16, John talks about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life being the key baits or the lures that the evil one will use. And this is the lust of the flesh. I'm hungry and I want that to satisfy me. And then it continues, not only did she see it was good for food, but it was also pleasing to her eye. The lust of the eyes. I want that. It looks good. And then it continues on. Not only the lust or the, the good for food and pleasing to the eye, but also desirable for gaining wisdom, the pride of life. I want to know more. God must be holding back something. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want to know that so I might be better than God has created me to be. And so she takes, the story continues, and she eats. She gives some to her husband who's with her, and he eats. And it goes on to talk about their eyes being opened. And as God confronts them about this, immediately they begin to blame. Satan is responsible. He tempted me. And some of these are implied, if not stated. Um, Well, the woman gave it to me to eat. It was her fault. Well, God, you shouldn't have put that off bounds to us anyway. Circumstance. Other people. God. We want to blame because if we can get it off our plate, then we don't have to feel bad anymore. We try to rescue ourselves from the guilt. And so we blame others to resolve that emotional upheaval in our hearts. And and as we blame and maybe realize we can't get away from it, we become embarrassed. Ah, embarrassed. There we go. I actually practiced spelling that so I'd get it right. Missed it tonight. I'm so embarrassed. Uh, We feel like everybody could find out what we've done. Man, my sin's going to find me out. What will they think of me? How will this affect my relationships with people? How will this affect my reputation at work? And we get embarrassed. And so what do we do? And they, they can't know this. It's the fear begins to well up. And so we move to isolation. You can write that down if you're taking notes. Isolation. I-so-lation. There we are. Isolation. And we hide. Adam and Eve did it. They hid from God, which in and of itself is quite a comical idea. God who knows all. Oh, shoot, you're behind a bush. I couldn't see you. 
Um, they hide from God. They don't want to be seen. And we isolate ourselves. We get in these cycles of sin, or, or it doesn't even have to be cycles. We, we bite that hook of temptation, and we don't want to be found out, and so we isolate ourselves from other people so we won't be embarrassed. We isolate ourselves emotionally from other people. We just become cold and distant because we don't want to deal with it. We isolate ourselves physically from people. We withdraw from our friendships. We don't have to be accountable or don't have to say answers to the hard questions that they might ask us. We isolate ourselves. And then finally, that moves us to a place of absolute defeat. We feel defeated. And that's where Satan sits and waits and whispers in our ears. You're no good. You can't possibly have victory in this area. You can't be an effective Christian with this. God will never forgive you for that. This is so bad. You might as well walk away from all things that are good because you're just terrible. And the numbness can set in as we move through this cycle and emotionally we just get drained down. That's the way we respond naturally to this. And the soul of Satan, his strategy is to make us ineffective Christians and lifeless people. It's the way we naturally respond when we bite the hook of temptation. Uh, my son and I, we are uh, trying to learn how to skimboard well right now. Uh, I don't know if you know what skimboarding is. It's a, a piece of wood about yay long, yay wide. And, and there's a couple of different ways. Usually what we do in town here is called flatland skimboarding. And, and there's the natural way. And if you go to the, the water and watch, most tourists or most people, when they get a skimboard, will uh, do this. They will take it and they will throw it into a tidal pool, a little pondish type area. Uh, and, and they'll throw it and then they'll chase it. And as they catch it, because it's almost stopped moving at this point, they then jump onto it and, uh, and go a little ways. That's just the natural way you begin to skimboard. But thanks to ingenious methods of communication like the Internet, uh, we can learn that there's actually a better way to skimboard. So Jordan and I are trying to figure out the better way to skimboard. And that is actually to run and work up to full speed. And then as you're running, drop it. Not throw it, drop it right in front of you and jump on at the same time. So it's at maximum speed you hit this thing and you go way further. Uh, You're able to maximize and leverage that speed so you can do some tricks and flips and jumps and all sorts of crazy stuff that send me to the chiropractor regularly. Um, There's a, a natural way to skimboard that just we think would work. And then there's a better way to skimboard. And it's something that's learned. And we have to work on it and figure it out. In the same way, there's a natural way we respond to temptations when we've bitten the hook and the sin that comes out of that. And there's a biblical way, a better way, a way that leads to life. That's the second way. And, and I just want to give you four steps that the Bible outlines for us that will, I think, be helpful to us as we begin to say, how do I respond to temptation in my life? How do I begin to have victory over this in my life, aside from bringing people around me? How do I keep it from robbing me of what I have? And, and just really quickly want to walk through these. The first one is simply acknowledge your sin. If you're taking notes, you can write that first one in. Acknowledge my sin. God doesn't have a sin scale. The Ten Commandments are not uh, from least to worst or worst to least. 
A sin is sin is sin in the eyes of God. Romans 3.23 says we've all fallen short of the glory of God. A sin is sin is sin. Now, there may be different levels of consequences for our sin. But sin is sin is sin in the eyes of the Father. And so whether it's a big moral falling or a small little white lie, they have the same weight in the eyes of the Father. And so we come to God and we acknowledge our sin, regardless of how big or small it seems to us. We say, God, I have sinned. We don't blame. We don't make excuses. We just simply bring it on a platter, as it were, in front of the Lord and say, here, God, here it is. Here it is. We begin to move through the remorse and guilt where the Holy Spirit is convicting us of that sin. And instead of moving to the blame game and the excuses, we jettison from that and we move into a biblical response. We acknowledge our sin. John 16.8 talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit is convicting us of our sin. It's one of His roles. And we acknowledge it. The second step is just very simple again. We accept the grace of God. Grace is one of those words that we use in church sometimes. We know the context that we might use that word in. uh, But often we don't know the definitions of some of these words we use in church. Grace is, for some of us, one of those. Uh, And I ask my high school students, what does grace mean? And they might give me different answers. Uh, It's what I say before I sit down and have supper. Uh, For me, uh, that was my grandma's name, Grace. Uh, Um... uh, is it, is it, often I hear that, is it like karma? Well, no. I mean, karma is I do, what, uh, the concept of karma is, is that what I do wrong or what I do comes back to me equal, I guess you could say. It's cold, it's mechanical, it's kind of a fuzzy logic type thing. If I do bad, it comes back to me. If I do good, it comes back to me. It's a one equals one type of a concept. Now, grace is nothing like that. Grace is this. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. Getting what I don't deserve. We use the word mercy as well. Uh, That's similar. That's not getting what I do deserve. But grace is getting what I don't deserve. Uh, Grace. The grace that comes through Christ. 1 John 1.14 says uh, the word the word Christ, was made flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. So Jesus stepping into history, taking on skin, living amongst his people. He created. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. We've just come out of the Easter season. And we've celebrated the story of grace. Um, We... Accept God's grace. That's one of the differences between those of us who are sinners and those of us who are saints. Those of us who are separated from God because of our sinful lifestyle and our nature. And those of us who have embraced Christ's grace, been forgiven and changed, and now walk in light and are no longer defined by sin, but we are now saints who sometimes sin. Our status before the Father changes. Uh, As a sinner, we are under the mastery of sin. We're obligated by it. We're ruled by it. 
But when we move onto the other side of the cross through the blood of Jesus Christ, Romans 6.14 above says this. It says, sin is no longer now your master. In other words, it used to be, but now it isn't. Uh, for you are no longer subject to the law which enslaves you to sin, what you were prior to encountering grace. Instead, you are free by what? By God's grace. In fact, grace is what overshadows this entire process. You may, if you've got a pen, and you're taking notes, want to just write right over it, grace. Grace covers and rescues us, rescues us from this response. And just as a side note, grace trumps karma every time. The third step, if the first is our sin and the second is accepting God's grace, the third is asking then God to actually forgive us. It's one thing to say, I did something wrong. It's quite another to come before the one whom you have wronged and ask forgiveness for it. John, First uh, John one nine says, "Confess your sins." When we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, I confess. I want to embrace Your forgiveness, and He freely gives through grace. And then the fourth step is simply this: once we've ejected ourselves from this cycle of repetitive sin, we move out of the shadow lands and into walking in the light, into the full freedom, the more and better life that God talks about. And we pursue godliness. A lot of us pursue different things. If we're a student in the room, uh, we're pursuing marks that are good ones. Uh, Some of us right now are on the tail end of college and we're trying to get through the last of the exams. We're pursuing conclusion, pursuing conclusion to our year of studies. For some of us, we're working, we may be pursuing uh, a step up in, in job, or maybe a switch of job. We're pursuing, we're all pursuing things and stuff. And some of it's great things, and some of it's great stuff. Are we pursuing godliness? Perhaps the greatest of the, the stuff. We begin to live in the light, free from sin that wears us down, and not motivated in interacting with people based on fear now. And what a weight that is off our shoulders. What a weight that is off our shoulders. If I can leave you with a a challenge tonight, it would be this. That you would know when you mess up That God loves you in the midst of that. As followers of Jesus, He extends grace to us. And He will forgive us. And for those of us here exploring Christianity, this is something that the Lord holds out to you tonight. You simply have to approach and say, God, I acknowledge, just walking through the steps I've just outlined, I'm a sinner. I understand Jesus Grace, that even though I don't deserve it, you extend forgiveness to me, and I ask for that forgiveness. And he extends it. Um, 
That would be my wish and my hope for us as, as a body as we work through whether it's the big cyclical moral sins or the little tiny stuff that uh, we sometimes brush to the side that we begin to deal with what happens when we bite that hook of temptation in a biblical way.